So I'm going to do something which is long overdue. And what it is, is remind myself of many years ago when the only thing I really ever wanted to do in life was to get on Radio Merseyside, which I did. And I had a, a Tuesday morning program, which I was able to do anything I wanted, really, and produce all sorts of things. And one day, a young man came in with, uh, now I can't remember whether, whether it was a piece of tape or whether it was a record or what it was, but I know it was called Merseyside and I know it was Don Woods. So without any further ado, let's go across to Wirral Merseyside and um, say a very good day. Welcome to you, Don, and uh, what's your weather like? And are you, are you okay? Hi, Vince. I'm okay. Yeah, it's pouring down here at the moment, but... Uh... Nothing changed there then, you know. <laughs> I'm still on Merseyside after all those years. Well, this is it, you see. I mean, my journey has been quite diverse and uh, all sorts of things have happened. And when we had the fire at the Hamilton Club Birkenhead, which threw me out of work as a DJ, um, really, I was also in the midst of change at Radio Merseyside. And so... You know, my final decision was to look after my family and we went down to Cornwall. And as you know, we didn't speak for many years because uh, we lost contact, so to speak. But can you remember, was that very first piece of tape you brought in? Was it a cassette? Was it, um, I, I can't remember what it would be. I think it was a cassette. It would have been a cassette because we went... We took it, what brought it up was we went to the German embassy because on the radio they criticised Liverpool, calling it, uh, you know, rough and dusty and dirty. And uh, so we decided, I sent you this song and you said, oh, we'll, we'll march on the German embassy and tell them, <laughs> you know, so that's what we did. We marched on them and uh, we played it to the fellow behind the counter who <laughs> who didn't seem very interested <laughs> But uh, at least it gave us a bit of publicity. You know, that, that's how it started out. And that's how I met you. And when we went on to Bob Azerdia's programme, do you remember him? And uh, we, we went on his programme. I went on with you. He played the song and we, we were telling him how we marched on the German embassy. So that was really the beginning of my radio adventures, really, you know, with Bob Azerdia. Yeah. Well, uh Bob, of course, used to play uh, right back for the Radio Merseyside football team, and he was the worst footballer you could have ever played with. Um, but what a lovely man, and obviously oh, a yes, very, yeah. very classy journalist, a very nice man. And, uh, of course, the, the thing was really that um, we both had the affinity in different ways of going to do things that, that were sort of bigger than just stepping out of the front door and uh, doing what a lot of other people have done and done very successfully in many different ways. But for me, I always wanted to do a radio programme, but because I didn't get the, you know, I didn't get the big job which would have paid the bills for the family, I couldn't just do freelance and put the family through it all the time. So we decided to go down to Cornwall. So what I want to do now is I want to find out a bit more 
about uh, the real Don Woods. Maybe by the time we've done this, both of us will regret it. But um, tell us about oh. your formative years. Where were you born? And um, tell me about your family life in the early days. I was born in a place called Wallasey, uh, for those that don't know. And it's on the banks of the Mersey, directly opposite Liverpool on the other side of the river. And, of course, we had a beach there, or the shore, as we used to call it. We had all the promenade to play on as kids. We had New Brighton Fairground. We had New Brighton Baths, which were the biggest baths in the country. The only thing, we didn't have any money, you know, as, as kids, as nobody did then. And that's and, and Wallasey, as always, I don't live there now, but Wallasey's always had a big spot in my heart. You know, it, it's, a, it's a great place. And it's strange. It's like on the end of the peninsula, the Whittle Peninsula. And so it, it's like um, a cul-de-sac. There's no way, th you know, you, you, there's nowhere else to go when you get to the coast. So you don't get through traffic, anything like that. Great place. And that's where I, I, was, I was born. And I lived as a kiddie. And then I went to the local school where um, I got in the choir because I, I was always very musical as a kid. Uh, my father w was a fan of, of uh, the 40s stuff and he was quite musical. And, and I, could, I could work out harmonies before I could play anything. I, I, could, I, I could, used to sing with kids in the street. We used to do songs. And when we used to do Christmas carols, go around the houses singing Christmas carols, I could work out harmonies. I had that in my head. You know, it's just a gift. Not that I'm any cleverer than anyone else. It's just something I could do, you know, and that, that was it. And, and the, my school days, in uh, Church Street School it was. It's, I think, it's a different name now. And I got in the school choir there, and that's where we began. And really, I wasn't really into music as such. I was more into sport back then, you know, as, as, as I've always been into sport, you know. So uh, tell me a bit about uh, your mum and your dad then, because obviously there must have been some musical influence in the house that was driving the ideas that you would have as a small child. Uh, who was the musical one, mum or dad? Uh, neither of them, really. My dad originally played the cello, uh, and I didn't know it before he got married. And, and he lived he lived in Wallasey before he married my mother. And his they were moving house, and they, they were lowering the cello out of the top window, uh, and, and the rope snapped, and that was the end of his cello. So I never I never knew anything about. It. But he, he was he he knew his music. But he wasn't musical as such, and it certainly didn't influence me in any way, really. It was just, I just liked music. I liked the, the Bing Crosby and Perry Como and all that, all those crooners. That, that was what I was really into, you know. Okay, and so this, you, was, this you, was before rock and roll, you know. Yes, yeah, so, but you must have heard that music somewhere. So was it in the house? Uh, was your mum listening to the radio? Because I know my mum was an avid radio listener so you know was was your mum doing that was that was what yeah, you were hearing yeah the same it was on all day the radio my mum see they both worked my dad uh, was a drove taxis and worked as a rent collector and my mum worked in a shop you know when i came home from school i used to just go walk straight into the house it wasn't locked it didn't lock your house in those days you just you know they, they, she'd go out to work in the shop because we had no money. I mean, he did he did taxi driving on the side and was a rent collector. 
And uh, as I used to go to school and then come back and come in the back way, and there was, I didn't have, have a key, didn't, didn't need the key, just went straight in. Hard to believe now, but that's how it was, you know, because we had nothing to pinch in the house, you know. We didn't even have carpets, and we used to take in lodges uh, to make a few bob. That was that was a thing. And you get these characters from up north, which would educate you, you know, you'd understand. And we had a guy who was in the army, he, he was a lodger, and he, he, you learn from these people, because they always listen to people, you know, there's always something to learn from people, you know, mm. and that's that, and that was my very early days, and then we, we had the, we had the, in the street, all the kids in the street got on, and then they did have boyfriends, the older girls, and the boyfriends uh, uh, educate us, you know, with, with the guitar, they'd bring a guitar along, to impress their girlfriends, but they'd be showing us how how Dwayne Eddy plays and all that. <laughs> so we had this, but they were only trying to impress the girlfriends. But it was great, you know. We were learning all the time, and it, it, you've got to if you're into it, you see. Which we a lot of people weren't. They couldn't. They weren't into it. But I was always into music, you know. But I wasn't allowed to be because my dad, for some reason, and it's crazy because he he was a good fiddle player. My dad. Um, but he he didn't want me to get involved with pop music, you know. I think he was he was hankering after me going to grammar school and you know possibly becoming something totally not what I wanted to do. Um, y- your primary school, what can you remember about any musical influences from the primary school? The primary school, I was in the school choir, and again. Uh, very early before it, 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 it wasn't at the end when we were in the older older lads it was early on i was in the school choir and i remember there was three of us used to sing in the morning in assembly and again i could work out harmonies and the teacher once said he was he was well impressed the teacher you know and, and they used to play uh, a classical record every morning we had to listen to and you know, Ina Klein and Nacht music and all that stuff, which, you know, it was good. I used to like it and, and take it in. You know, you think, oh, that's... Uh, and I can remember the, the stuff now they played. And the teachers in Church Street w- were very good. Y- you know, we, 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 we... Like it was... We played cricket for the school and, and, um, and, and I think I played a bit of football for the school. But it was great, but musically... No, you weren't really pushed, you know, into it at all. It was just something that was there. I just liked the music, you know, and we and I got a, a, a plastic trumpet, if I remember, for Christmas, one of those with the four things on. And one of the lads in the street also got one. So we used to play Come to the Cookhouse Door Boys, and I could pick out the notes on it that I wanted to play. You know, I just had an ear for music, but I couldn't play anything then. I couldn't play any instrument, you know. Very interesting because from what you said, the school must have had some sort of an effect on you because obviously uh, there was a choir. Now, we didn't have that, uh, not mm-hmm. to the best of my memory. You know, sometimes somebody might come along and say something, oh, yes, you did. But I don't remember it, that's for sure. Although when I went eventually to St. Anselm's, we did have a choir there. So, um, so. I'm getting a bit of a flavour that things were sort of doing quite well for you in the primary school. At least there was an influence. 
when yeah, you... also, also, we had a teacher who wrote plays. Oh. He wrote the Christmas school play. And I used to be in these plays. That's when I got a taste for the stage. Because you come out on the stage in front of the whole school and the parents, and you say something, and they all laugh. It, it, it sort of has an effect on you, you know. And, and I found, like, so I could do it without being nervous. I could get up on the stage and enjoy it, you know. And I got a taste for it from, from the Church Street School. That, that was another part of it all, which I'd completely forgotten about. But I used to be in the play each year. Well, and I, uh, learn, I, learn me lines, you know. Yeah, well, and, uh, that was... I mean, you can see the connections coming in already because obviously you wrote a play, and we'll talk about that that later. Uh, not the Ernie Wise type. This was um, something that uh, you really did develop. Let me also remind our listeners that uh, on the other side of the Wirral is um, Birkenhead. Now, Birkenhead is where I was born, and of course, you. Uh, the two were quite distinct, really, at that time, because don't forget, travel wasn't like we know it today. There, there was much; it was much easier to get on a bike. Probably when I was about, um, I don't know, sixteen, because your parents would be very careful about trying not to let you go too far. But they, they didn't have the worries and the preoccupations that people have had ever since our early days. You went to um, a different grammar school. Mine was the only Catholic grammar school in the area. So, of course, it was a big thing. I wanted to go there. I did go there. It was called St. Anselm's in Birkenhead. And we had people from Wallasey who used to always come in late. And the excuse was always the same. The bridge. <laughs> the bridge was up. I know what you're going to say. The bridge was up. It is. <laughs> Kevin That's O'Toole. Right. I use that myself, actually, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kevin O'Toole was somebody that every single day he'd come in late and he'd say the bridge was up, you know. And um, I can remember the guys who came in from Wallasey, Dennis Torpy, another name that just sprang into my, my mind. But, of course, you wouldn't have had that excuse because you went to um, a different uh, secondary school. So tell us about your secondary education. Yeah, I, I got the scholarship, the, tw the 11 plus uh, and there was only 13 in the primary school that got it. Got the 11 plus. Everyone else went to the secondary modern. But I was one of the chosen few. You know, we went to a school called the technical technical school, which became the technical grammar. And uh, it, it's now still there. It's now Moslems. But we were the first ones in. When I went into the first year, the school had just changed from somewhere else and had become a boys' school. So I missed out on all the girls. It was a mixed school, so I missed out on all that. So at 11 or 10, 10 I think it was, I went into the Moslem school as one of the first pupils in the first year. So our year was the first one to do the first run through. And, uh, every, and it was a great school. It, it was the first school in the area to cook school meals on the premises because you used to get them in a big can, didn't you, in other schools, which were horrible. Yeah. And uh, that, that, it was a great school. And early on in the school, we had uh, lads from the local area, uh, Seacom and Morton and, you know, some ruffians and whatever. And in the first year, uh, some second year picked on me. And uh, we went into this sort of gym. The teacher said, we're not having fighting in the playground. Go in the gym and sort of, and I sorted this bloke out, good style, because uh, I, I could handle myself. 
And I never had any trouble right through school after that. I was totally respected, you know. Which, and I always tell people, don't get bullied when you're young. If, if you if you fight back, as you know yourself, you know you you, you you'll go through life. And and because and in the school, yeah, it was a very sporty school, the tech. And I was good at sport. I, I could I, I was I swam for the school, played cricket for the school, rugby for the school. Uh, athletic, uh, captain of the athletics team, and I was well into sport. That was my passion. Always has been sport, my passion. And going through the school while we were there, rock and roll broke out. You okay. know, in, in nineteen, I, I started in nineteen fifty-six. Just hold that for there. a second. Hold that thought because I'm just going to quickly tell you, I was pretty much the same as you. Um, weren't many of us went through on the scholarship, and um, the only difference was. I was bullied in the playground. A group of lads came up to me, and there was this one particular lad who stuck the headbutt on me. And uh, basically, I did manage to cling on because it did sort of knock me sideways, and it wasn't very nice. And I did have a little antidote that came later, but it was much later in my life, which is, of course, my judo. Now, I'm going to go back to that uh, remark you just passed about the rock and roll. Um, because if I can get this going. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're going to rock around the clock tonight. But it's that black song. Okay, so uh, I'm playing, of course, Rock Around the Clock, and this was not allowed, this was not available to me in our house. For some reason, my dad didn't want anybody sort of from the family doing some of the things that uh, eventually we would have done. Um, But uh, I'll never really understand what that was about, apart from the fact that my dad was a very good man, and I know that he was doing it for the right reasons if maybe he didn't do it in the right way. Now, your parents sounded as if they were letting you listen and go to the cinema and things like that. Um, so was it a question of the freedom? Did you have that freedom? And tell me about the influence of that song on what happened with you next. Well, m- my dad was the same as your dad. It, you know, keep away from those teddy boys. Oh, that music's rubbish. You know, it, it's because he he was into the crooners, Bing Crosby, and all and all those guys. That's what he was into, and and so was I. I. I used to love the crooning, and I used to listen to the phrasing of it. And, and he said, "Oh, keep away from those teddy boys." And that and that's what we all got. It's all oh, they're always looking for trouble, and the music's rubbish, and you know, and this. And I I, I went along with it. I thought, well, he's right. And in the in the meantime, I got a ukulele for Christmas. And I learned to play it, the ukulele, like three chords. My wife and I lives all alone in a little log hut. We call her on just the three chords. I learned these three chords on the ukulele. And I sort of quite fancied myself on this, you know. Anyway, one day, uh, it was rare. I always remember the day. It was about 1956, 57. And it was raining. And it was a Saturday afternoon. And my mate, we, we, we used to knock around together. And I said, let's go. This, this rock around the clocks on the the Gormont in, in the cinema in, in Wallasey. Let's go and have a look and see what it's all about. 
I didn't have a clue what it was about. Went to see it, and I just watched it with an open mouth. I couldn't believe what I was watching. It was fantastic. All the rock and roll and all the, the groups of the, of the 50s, Bill Haley and the Comets, blew me away. And all these guys were getting up in the, in the aisles and jiving to the music. Everyone was clapping. When I came out of the theatre, I was a different lad completely. And I said, that is what we've got to do. That's it. I've got to do that. And there's no turning back. It was fantastic. And, of course, rock and roll then, when we were in school, we used to listen to Radio Luxembourg because the BBC wouldn't play it, you know. They were a bit above all that. And it just progressed from there. And my dad, I said to my dad, I've got to have a guitar. So he made me one uh, out of a kit. He bought a kit because uh, a clever fellow, my dad. And he made me this guitar. And when I started playing it, it was at the six strings on and I was struggling a bit. So he said, well, put four strings on it, take two strings off and play it, play it like a ukulele, which it did. And it sounded OK then. Off we went. And then gradually, as I say, we had these lads who'd come into the road, the, 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 girl, the girls' boyfriends with their guitars to impress the girls. And they'd be showing us how to bend these strings and everything. And because we were looking. And one fella who lived next door but one, the girl who lived next door but one, her boyfriend was great. He said, go and get your guitar and I'll show you how to, how to do chords. And I learned from him how to play chords. And then I put the six strings on the guitar. And because we could play skiffle, you see, as well, which is only two or three chords. Which, so the music then was so much easier to get into because you could listen, like Rock Around the Clock's only three chords. You could listen to music on Radio Luxembourg and you could play it. See, now it's totally different now, the music. And, and that's how we started. So I, I got a group together um, from school. We had a couple of, one of the lads, his dad bought him a guitar and off we went. And that was the very beginning of it all. But as I say, we could play the stuff. We were little Lonnie Donegan and all the skiffle stuff was easy. And then gradually you could break into rock and roll. And what happened with me was we had a lad came up from London to, to school. He, he was a fellow called Ricky Fuchs. And he looked like Ricky Nelson, actually. He was a good looking lad. And he said, I'll show you some chords he could play. He said, if you play these chords, you can play anything. You'll get away with anything. If you learn these four chords, I'll write them down for you with the fingering. And it was Paul Little Fool, uh, C, A minor, F, G. And because up to then, we were only playing three chords, you know, the skiffle. And, and I got this off and I thought, yeah. And then you could play Summer Holiday and all, all, the, all the songs, because basically all the songs were those four chords you know, in, in maybe in different orders. And that's how it started, really. And then once you get going on the guitar, you just keep progressing, you know, because you never, you never learn. You never, you never get to where you want to be. You know, you'd always just, learn something. Um, just stay with that learn. name, Ricky Nelson, for a second. There'll never be anyone else but you. Just couldn't be anyone else but you If I could take my pick of all The girls I've ever known Then I'd come and pick you out 
Okay, so that's the guy that uh, obviously influenced you in an early sense. And uh, we're going to be looking at some of the things you've done as, for example, you did do a tribute to uh, Ricky Nelson. But I want to go back for a second to Wallasey because um, Birkenhead, of course, we had the Camelard Ship Building Yard um, and we had Tramia Rovers, which is still a football club in the English football leagues. Wallasey didn't have that sort of thing. And I wonder whether or not Wallasey was more musical than Birkenhead was, because we did have a couple of groups that did quite well. Um, but uh, when I would be about 17, possibly 18, I started going to the, um, the Kral in New Brighton, which mm. was one of the influences in, in my life, which started me really getting into um, wanting to be a DJ. And obviously I should if I'd have kept with what I originally did, which was to learn to play the harmonica and then sort of, you know, play with some really poor groups in the early days, it's a pity I didn't stay with that. But why do you think Wallasey was so musical? I don't know. Ask the school I went to. There were so many groups. The Undertakers, who had hits, came out of there. Uh, my, my best mate at the time, Tom Bennett, uh, he was a drummer in the Pressmen. And we had Gaz Gaskell, Gaz and the Groovers. They all came out of our school. Um, it, it was it was strange. It was the rock and roll. It, it rolled on. And the, the, the music teacher we had hated it, hated it all. Thought, you know, oh, you're old, you can't, you can't. You're Vera Linning, he used to call it, sliding into a note. You've got to sing the note straight. This is what he was like. So, <laughs> you know, we didn't take any notice of him. And the classic was we had a... He said, I don't suppose any of you play on instruments, do you, you know, with, with your stupid music. And this lad said, I play the piano, sir. This is one of the lads who I didn't know he was a he could play. A fellow called Jeff King, who ended up with, with a trio. And he said, I can play, sir. And he said, well, let's see what you can do. And he gets up on the piano and he launches into Russ Conway's uh, stuff and he was brilliant and uh, he was he's cross, crossing his hands and he kept looking over to us winking and uh, he blew his teacher away and when he came off the piano we were all saying I didn't know he could play he said oh yeah he said I'm, I was classically trained from the age of three and we didn't know he never said a word and he was brilliant you know so of course we grabbed him and put him in a group and well, and uh, you know, Cliff Roberts and the Rockers, he, he went to our school and all this. You know, it, it was a strange time, but it was the rock and roll. It was like a tsunami. You had to be there, you know, to know that you can't explain it to, to youngsters. It was it, it's just it was like it just hit you like a ton of bricks. And if you were into it, you know, it, it was it was off you go. It was the start of a long road, you know, which it was for me. But you, but, you uh, see, you, you can hear in your voice that this was something that was, I won't say peculiar to Wallasey, but you see, I think possibly because we were so uh, disparate, we had people coming in from all round the Wirral and Ellesmere Port to go to St Anselm's. We yeah, weren't yeah. all from Wallasey. We weren't all from Birkenhead. And so we wouldn't necessarily see many of our... In fact, really, it sort of broke up our friendships because we'd go from our primary school and uh, most of my friends all disappeared overnight because I, I then had gone up to live in Bebbington because mum and dad had moved up there. And so I was probably quite isolated. And when I look back, 
um, until I met a group of lads who played football and we all became friends through the football. But uh, going back to, obviously, um, what was happening in Wallasey, you seem to have got closer to each other in that yeah. sense. You know, sometimes I, I, I wonder whether... I was lucky to go to the grammar school or whether it was unfortunate for me because if I'd gone probably to St. Hugh's, I would have stayed with all the original friends I had. What yeah, happened? You're right. That, that was it because, you know, you, you go to school and then you'd say, I'll see you in the crowd, like you say, the, the club. And, and everyone was local. You know, you could, go and, you could go and see your mate in, like, a place called Liscard. Wallace was all, like, Eggroom and Liscard. They're all separate little communities yeah. and you could just go and, and nothing was further than a couple of miles away you know and we had we had new brighton fairground and you go up there and stand on the waltzer combing your hair waiting for the girls to attack which they never did play and listen to all the rock and roll music you know and and it was great it was a great time and at the time i appreciated it it, it was good you know but you didn't really you weren't aware of anything else going on as you're like talking head, head was, was we didn't know what was going on there really yeah it had nothing to do with it as you're talking you see i can immediately see some differences that would have helped you in your aspirations musically and not me from birkenhead because basically uh, you were a seaside town. You had the tower, which was almost as grand as the Blackpool Tower, which, of course, sadly eventually burnt down. You had the fur ground, and then you had those clubs on the seafront, whereas for us in Birkenhead, um, it wasn't really quite the same thing. I mean, we did eventually get the California Club, which was uh, basically a, a gambling place, and there were a few other drinking and gambling places, but for general going in and having a dance and everything, it was probably only when I, I, I got to the cabin and became the DJ there that, that things changed. I want to go to your GCE as it was at the time. Um, did that really influence your life greatly? Because I know you, we had to have five O-levels, uh, yeah. of which two had to be English and maths to be able to go into the uh, sixth form, and I didn't do that. I, I, I got four, and I didn't get the fifth one, so I had to go out to work. Um, how did that affect you uh, at that period of your life? Well, what what happened in school, I, Tommy Bennett, the, the, the chap was, was my mate, and his brother had a tape recorder. And when, I used to go round to his house, uh, as you say, locally. He lived in a place called Poulton. And I'd take my guitar around to his house and we'd record on this tape recorder. And that's when I got the taste, the taste for recording. And up till then, I wasn't particularly interested. My dad said, oh, you've got to get a decent job, uh, a good, safe job, which he was right. But really, all I wanted to do was get a group and play in the group. That was that was in my mind because once I got into this tape recording business, which I'll talk about later in a minute or whatever. And so I took I took my GCEs. I took them a year early. I took four and I got two when I was fifteen: maths and English, uh, or maths and uh, physics. No, maths and art. I can't even remember. <laughs> anyway. So I went, I went directly into the sixth form. Uh, I went past the fifth year into the sixth form, into the university stream. And I took advanced art, advanced maths, 
um, um, advanced history, which was a major error because history near saw me off. It was the Russian Revolution. I, I, I wasn't clever enough. And the art, I, I, was, I was good at art, but, but it was all theory and it was, it was intense. So I decided to pack in, you know, because I had maths and, and, uh, and, and art. All I needed was a, a language and two, two others to get me five GCEs to go into the town hall, which I'd, I'd planned to do, which is a good, safe job. Again, big mistake. But um, the uh, oh, so what I was doing in February, I said, I'm going to I'm not going to take A levels anymore. I told headmaster he was all right about it. And that was it. I said, I'm going to leave in the July. And I'll, I'll get me other three. So I took the exams, the GCs, again, the ones I didn't get. And the, I, I, one of them was English literature. And there's no way I failed it. But there's no way I failed it. Because I could, I could have told you the word, a word on any page. I read this hard times it was, Charles Dickens. I read it about 20 times because I was doing nothing else, you know. And I failed it. And I said to my dad, there's no way I failed this, but I've passed Spanish. Maybe they've got the two mixed up because I wasn't that good at Spanish. So I said, say nothing. So I ended up maths, English. Well, I think I've got a little, I can't remember what they were. Uh, maths, maths, English, Spanish, art and physics. So I ended up with the, the, the five GCEs, which got me into Wallasey Town Hall. And uh, which then I, I could... I was studying to be a um, an accountant, uh, and that that was what I, the, the the plan was, you know. So I was studying, and then by then I'd got a group together from school, and we we four of us, and we bought amplifiers because I had a few bob on the weekly. I think I was on four pound a week, I think, when I started, or three pound nineteen and six, and uh, off we went. So we formed this band. Uh, Vlad bought a set of drums. And we had, we had a bass player and rhythm. And we used to do the youth clubs. And that's how it all started. And we were called, uh, what were we called? The Imperials. And then the Cresters, changing the name to the Cresters with a K, you know. <laughs> we used to carry our gear for uh, about a mile to this youth club. <laughs> you know, drums, carry it walking. Amazing. When you think, yellow tie, yellow hanky in the pocket, and Sue's <laughs> walking up the road with all this gear. Hard to believe now, really. It's and, wonderful. Um, wonderful. Listen, I'm going to go back to a point you made before. When I got <laughs> my first GCEs, I was, I remember this totally remembering that I was working, uh, picking crops at the fields out uh, Clatterbridge Way. The results were in when I got home, and I'd only got um, three to start with, which um, was English, French, and um, I think it was geography, the other one. and Or was it history? One or the other. And basically, I, I was absolutely devastated, really, because I, I had worked quite hard for my, for my O-levels. And the point you just made is something that I think many people wouldn't know about until later when I became a teacher and I found out that they raise the standard and so some years they mark more 
more heavily than other years, um, to, depending on whether the economy can su um, support enough students going into the universities and that sort of thing. So yeah. it's interesting that. I'm going to play a little track and then we're going to talk about your studio. So uh, let me just get this prepared. We're going to go to a tribute to Bobby V. And um, I say that the minute I said that and press the button. Okay, like all good MP3 files, we had a stutter to start with, but uh, we got there eventually. And um, we're talking about looking at the way your studio worked. I mean, on that particular one, you can clearly hear the um, the, the harmonies and uh, the, the different instruments and everything. So uh, you, I would imagine, started on a bit of a shoestring and then developed along the lines of uh, maybe some of the Motown earlier recordings with bits and pieces added in, pins being rattled and all that sort of stuff. Tell me if I'm wrong. Yeah, what it was, the, the tape recorder, uh, it, it, got, it got into under my skin with, with Tommy Bennett. His, his brother had this tape recorder, and I was totally sold on tape taping. So I got one for Christmas. My dad bought me a tape recorder for, for Christmas. And I used to record on that. And then I went out with a girl who had another, she had a tape recorder. So what I was doing then in her house when we were recording, I was recording on one and bouncing it across to the other one and then bouncing it back, playing along with myself. And all the, you see, so, it, but the trouble with that is, you started to lose quality every time you, you bounced it across. You'd lose a bit of quality. So I, I progressed with this, and I found I could actually write songs. I used to write songs for the group, you know, simple songs, and, and record them backwards and forwards, playing play rhythm, and then I'd play lead, and then sing, and then sing. But and then, then with the ad, as, as time went on, they brought a, a machine out that was called Sound on Sound, which was like a two-track reel-to-reel. And you could bounce one track onto another track and play along with it and then bounce it back again. Sound on Sound, it was called. But again, you were losing a bit of quality. And I, I, may, I started, that's when I started writing songs. I thought, oh, I can, I can do this because I can play bass. I can play guitar, I can struggle with keyboards, and I can play the drums, and I can sing. So I didn't need anybody else. I used to do it all myself. Not from an ego point of view. It's just that it was easier to do that. And you, you, can, you can compose it as you go along 
when you're doing it on your own. You haven't got to have it all ready. And then from there, uh, I, I, I thought, oh, this is okay. And I thought, I'm going to get myself a four-track machine, a, a professional recording machine. So I bought a four-track. This is in the in the 70s, this would have been. And I, I built a little um, a mixer desk so I could send the sound here and there. And then I started writing stuff. And one of the, the, one of the first songs I wrote was for, for a local girl um, uh, called Penny Page. She had a... Uh, an act with, with these puppets, Pepe and the Puppets, she called herself. And one of them was called Googie the Duck. And, and we were playing in the band and she was on with us. And I said, that duck's the one. I knew, I knew her actually. I said, that duck's the one. The others are okay. She said, oh, well, everybody likes. And I said, no, the duck is the Hang one. Hang on, Don. Here he comes. Okay, now again, life is so strange because I didn't know um, the, the the lady involved at the time, and we used to live on Liso Road when we first got married, and yeah. uh, we had a guy and a lady used to go past our house every day with their dog, and uh, it was David Alexander and um, Penny Penny Page. And our dog, uh, sorry, our cat jumped on the back of their dog one particular day. And that's how we got talking. And then, of course, I realized who he was. He then realized I had uh, uh, the Radio Merseyside connections, etc. And we obviously uh, said hello to each other uh, whenever we could as we would pass each other. In fact, this particular road... I can rem- remember going, uh, jogging down, right down to the bottom, going on to the uh, Morton side and then going on to the Wallace side. And I met all sorts of um, showbiz people, usually uh, either early morning when they were taking the kids for a walk or something like that. It was really weird that um, so many showbiz people used to like walking as well. But going back to your studio, you obviously were becoming quite innovative, weren't you? Yeah, well, I, I, that Googie the Duck song, I just did it on four track. That wasn't my production of it. And I gave it to her. I said, do use that in your act, sing, get the duck to sing about your duck, you know, which she did. And I never I never heard from her for another four years. And four years later, she said, oh, we made a record of this song of yours. And that was it. And it really took off this. And it ended up in a film, the song. I made, made a few bobs, to say the least. And, and, and you know, from nothing. And I thought, wow, this, this is it. That's what I thought. There's money in this game. You know, so I, I, I did a song and sent it to um, Opportunity Knox uh, on, on the four track. And... Um, I, I couldn't write music. You had to write music 
to 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 get it get it through with Uncle Bob Sharples and uh, Huey Green, you know, and all those. So while I was working, one of the girls in the office was a, um, a, a she was she was a a musician, you know, she could play the piano. She was classically trained again. And I said, can you teach me to write top line music and chords? She said, yeah. And in the lunch hour, I sat down with her and she taught me to write top line, you know, because I could take it in quick because I knew exactly what she was saying. And this this note stretches over two and, and the three. So I got it all. So I, I wrote it off and I, and I got through to the final of Opportunity Knox with one of my songs. <laughs> and the girls sang it. We went down there. We didn't win. But... Uh, you know, it was in the last six, which get, and I thought, oh, I must have something, you know, to, there's something there, you know. So that's when I started really taking it seriously. And then what I did after that, in the 80s, or the, the late 70s, I was right, I was sending songs to publishers. And one of them was Angie McCartney, who's Paul McCartney's stepmother. She was local, actually, and she had a local publishing company with her daughter, Ruth. And I knew her from the past via Lee P. Lee, your mate, he, he introduced me to them. And, and to, to cut a long story short, I was with her for two or three years and they were managing um, Gary Glitter, actually, at the time, before his, his demise. And they, they went to America. And, and while I was with them, I wrote stuff for uh, Cannon and Ball, and, and and people like that. And Cannon and Ball, the song I wrote them, they didn't want. So I took it down to, to the um, Floral Pavilion when the Crankies were on. And I said to my mate, they give this song to the Crankies, they, they could sing this. It's called He's Me Mate. And they, and they got back to me, yeah, we'll do this. They ended up doing it on the Palladium. I, wasn't, I was watching the Palladium. Normally come and sing it. I just wasn't prepared for this at all. And since then... I've been a friend. I've, I've written songs for the Crankies for years. Every year I used to write it for the pantomime. You know, from something, tiny little thing like that, these things happen. And, of course, to, you, uh, and of course, you in, you introduced um, the Crankies to me, um, uh, which is actually on my website w w with, um, uh, what was J Janice, is it? Or yeah, Janet. Jeanette. Jeanette. Yeah. Jeanette. The name is tough, T-O-U-G-H. Jeanette. She'd, Jeanette had, and Tuff, she, yeah. she'd had um, quite a nasty fall, hadn't she, from, um, from from one of the, I think it was one of the pantomimes she was in or something. Jack and the Beanstalk, yeah, the, the, the machinery. She was climbing and collapsing. She was lucky to survive it, you know. And, uh, in fact, I had, I had a couple of songs in that pantomime as well. Uh, Daisy the Cow, Daisy the Coo. As she called it, but that was up in Glasgow somewhere. She was lucky to to, to survive that, and they've they've retired now. I think they live in Australia, but uh, they were great, a lovely couple. I knew them for years and years, and okay. every year they'd write to me. I'm going to go next. I'm going to go next to another guy with one of your uh, songs, and this is Adrian Street. For those that don't know, Adrian is a world-famous wrestler, and this is Don's song. I can break a door down with one hand behind my back. I can crush a grizzly till its bones begin to crack. I eat a dozen T-bones for my early morning snack. So imagine what I could do to you. 
sort of dramatic in the stuff that he wore at a time when probably there weren't that many people doing that sort of thing. So tell me, how did you meet him? And uh, then talk about the song that uh, that we just heard. Right. Well, when Angie just started off, when Angie McCartney and Ruth left, they went to America and she said, there's no point in you writing to publishers. You know, do it yourself. You know the drill. You don't need publishers because publishers take 50% of what you what you do. She said, you know exactly what you're doing. Form your own company, form your own record company and do it yourself. She said, that's my advice. You can have all your stuff back. We'll sign it all back to you. And that's what I did. And um, I set up a studio in my attic, an eight-track uh, professional job with the, with the mixer desk and everything. And that's how I started. I thought, this is this is... This is it. You know, th- th- there's got to be money in this. And as I, I was playing in the band all the time along this uh, along this track, along this thing, you know, so that was a separate thing. So I was making money from the band and, you know, I put it, in, I put it into this. And I sent a song to a local um, recording company in Chester. And they said, we've got a chap here called Adrian Street, the wrestler who, who uh, I knew of, I didn't know him. And he said, he wants to sing one of these songs of yours. And it was called A Mighty Big Girl, <laughs> which, which is what he is. <laughs> you know, he's exotic. He's not gay at all. He's the exact opposite, actually. But, uh, you know, it, it, this was his persona. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he, was, he was in the studio, and he, he liked the title, A Mighty Big Girl. And it was about a, a fella goes to a dance and uh, dances with this large lady on the dance floor who throws him all over the place, you know, gets him in headlocks and all sorts. And he loved this. So I said, well, I'll write you another one. I said, I'll play the B-side. We'll do it as a record. And uh, I, 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 there's a song, I'm only happy when I'm stoned. I had uh, one of the songs I've written. And he said, well, I'm only happy breaking bones. I said, well, that's what I'll do. I'll change the words. Here so it comes. Don, here it comes. <laughs> I can break a door down with one hand behind my back. I can crush a grizzly till its bones begin. Oh, hang on. That's imagine what I can do to you. It's turned back. <laughs> it's gone into a medley, unfortunately, but never mind, because uh, I've got uh, him coming up on YouTube with uh, all of his songs. But anyway, so Breaking Bones it took you as far as America, I believe. How did yeah. that happen? What, what happened? What happened? Well, when they recorded it in the Chester studio, the Breaking Bones was one side, a mighty big girl the other. I didn't like it. I didn't think think it was very good. They didn't do it very well. I didn't think. And uh, so I said, we'll do it in my studio. So we redid it. And he used to sell it around the the wrestling rings. And it went down great. You know, people used to... he, He was a baddie, so people hated him. So they used to buy the record so they could snap it in half, you know. But we weren't bothered because we had their money. So that that's basically uh, basically the, the the reasoning behind this. And I said to him, "What you need really is is a song to come into the ring to. You can you can come out. I, I'll work out a song so 
when you, when you appear out of the door and you walk towards the ring, this song's playing, and it'll end when you get into the ring. It'll be about two minutes long. I timed it all, and that was what he used and still used up till he retired recently. For years, he used this song. Imagine what I could do to you. You know, he could pull trees out by its roots. So imagine what he could do to you. That was the that was the thing. And I did another one the other Saturday called I'm in love with me, and that was it. We sold the records round the ring. He then decided to go to America because uh, wrestling had, had finished here. Big Daddy killed it off totally, and all those fellas that couldn't wrestle. And off he goes to America. I never heard from him for a while. Then he gets in touch with me and he says, uh, I, 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 this, "This song you've done, I, I'm in love with me. I've got it on MTV. This is in America." And I said, MT "The MTV?" He said, "I said, have you re-recorded it?" He said, "No." It's, it's as it's done in your attic. <laughs> so he, he made a video of this. This just shows you, you see, that this is what I say to people. It doesn't matter what people think of, of what you do, of what, what your song is. Because a fella told me uh, that imagine what I could do to you. One of these record producers told me it was the worst record he'd ever heard. And he said, the world will never be ready for it. And he, he put it on. I put that on the label. This is the worst record I've ever heard. You know, uh, the world will never be ready for this. RCA Records, whatever it was. <laughs> anyway, that record got on MTV and paid off my mortgage. That, that's, that's how much that guy knew. You, you know what I'm saying? So then, because th this was on MTV and I was making a few bob, to say the least, from America... I said, I'm coming over and we make an album. And uh, we went over, I went over to the States and we, we, we ended up making two albums for him. I wrote 22 wrestling songs, uh, titles like Violence is Golden and Merchant of Menace. You know, <laughs> all these crazy here's titles. That, here's that song now, I'm in love with me. Someone to adore I've already given up my heart And the love I have Is all kind of fault I've fallen for a gorgeous work of art When I want to see The fairest of them all And get to the sexy eyes of blue I walk up to the full length Mirror on the wall and just admire the view. My uh, wife, by the way, has just come into uh, our studio and she's looking at uh, the, um, the Adrian Street uh, pictures and uh, showing me a horrified expression on her face. It's a wrestler and Don's song, and I just thought I'd mention that. <laughs> Don. Oh, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what the, the guy we had the same sense of humor that was what that was what made it yes we shared yes. exactly the same sense of humor we hit it off straight away when I met him in the studio and when I went over there the laughs we had was it was just great you know and I went over twice and as I say we made two records and the way we made them was was silly because we I bought, I took the backing tracks over. I might have told you this before. I took the backing tracks over of all the new songs I'd written. And I said, I'll bring the tracks over. 
sort a studio out and I'll record your voice. Well, we'll record your voice in the studio and I'll bring your voice back here and thread them onto the, the, the eight-track machine. And so when I got there, we, we couldn't get that over to the Yanks. I was saying, you know, you know all I want is voice with the backing tracks. I said, no, just his voice. You play the backing tracks into his ear, into his earphones, so all he can hear is the backing tracks. He sings into the mic, and I, I, I have a tape of his voice. Will the backing tracks? I said, oh, I said to Adrian, oh, let's get out of here. I said, you know, yeah, yeah, whatever. And we, and then we bought a machine, a, um, a, a, a domestic tape recorder, and I recorded his voice in his flat over there, and that's how we did it. And I brought his voice back over to this side and put it on. And we were telling people, yeah, we did this in Abbey Road. And people said, oh, yeah, it's, you can really tell. <laughs> it was, it was, that's how we did it, in his flat. And, you know, and it's so great, and it still is selling. And mm. it's been re-released, the, the, the two albums, by uh, a, a company in America, um, a record company in America that re-released it. It's all over the internet. You know, I, I, I've just let them get on with it. Just send me the money. You know, I'm not, don't want to get involved anymore. But uh, that, see, but that's what I'm saying to people, you see. Don't listen to people. If you have belief in what you do, which I always have, you know, and you do it yourself, then as I've always said, the only opinion that matters is mine of my stuff. I don't care what people think. I don't care what people think of me. It doesn't make any difference. You know, I was in it for the money. From, from the word go, <laughs> basically. It sounds awful. Is there, that... is there anything that you've failed in, you'd think, in life? Anything you've failed? Um, not really, no. I can't really think. It sounds big-headed, doesn't it? But I put the effort in, you see. that That's the thing. You, you've got to put yourself out there. Uh, and, see, with the recording, I used to listen to records and think, how did he get that sound? And because I used to play the drums before the dr drum boxes and, and, and things came out. And so I used to hit the snare and then wind it back and then hit a cardboard box with a, a pillow in it to give the snare a bit of meat and, and things like that. And I used to play the hi-hat. When, when I played the hi-hat, it, it was rattly. And so I, I used to use um, a Chinese... Uh, stick what, what you call them the things you eat with a, ch a chopstick i used to hit it with a chopstick because it was light see that's how i got the sound and and it worked you know and i used to multi-track myself and i could take my time doing it because i could do put the bass line on the guitar and go and have a cup of tea and then come back you know it it it, it was that's how i did it all and then as as time moved on modern technology came in and then I could have a 32-track studio on a computer. So you didn't need all the gear. So I got rid of all the gear and went on to the... So my latest songs, the 32-track... Well, look, and... let, let, me, let me just yeah. go to modern technology for a minute because uh, it's amazing what you can find or what other people can find if they look for it. Um, now, for example, I'm looking at one particular piece of uh, YouTube... Uh, recording and uh, we're going to listen to it in a second or two um, because basically people don't realise how much now, is out there. Let's do the song out. Yeah. Do we, do, can we play that? Yeah. Which one? Track two. Okay, so Alad uh, 
Greg James does this intro to the place with the longest name. Mm. Uh, the Gok Gok place. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, uh. And he said that there is a song all about it. Which, help us learn. Which, which helps you learn the words. Now, I've got to be honest. Under the Trade Descriptions Act of Helps You Learn the Words, yeah, I don't know how helpful it is, but it was, it was a cute song. I thought it was good. So, should we play it? Yeah. I'm really sure. Sing along if you know this. If you do, you don't need to learn. There's a certain Welsh village which has become world famous simply because of its name. Yeah. A name which enables the village to boast one of the longest railway station signs in the world. Swansea. Situated on the beautiful Isle of Anglesey, yeah. it is called Llanfair Pwswingeth Gogerch Llyndrobo Llanty Siriot Gogogoch. This song will teach you how to say it. Llanfair Pwswingeth Gogerch Llyndrobo Llanty Siriot Gogogoch. Okay, now just let me describe what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a Radio 1 disc jockey working. It looks like he's got a house in it and he's got his own studio, very much like I'm doing here. And it looks like it's probably your lad in front of him. And basically, they're taking the mickey out of something which they don't really understand. Uh, I say this because I'm looking at him every time he gets the the, the Welsh yeah, sound. Yeah. You see, um, there's a difference between him, who is de- basically taking the mickey a little bit, but he doesn't realise he's making himself look a bit silly because... It's the beauty of Wales that we're talking about and your love of Wales, which has been brought through the wonder of technology and through the fact that your lad is in front of him, bringing him the chance to discuss this wonderful country and this wonderful song that made you a few bobs. So tell us a little bit about the story and if you can just tell me what you are aware of with that particular broadcasting. Was that a Radio 1 broadcast? Well, it looks like a Radio 1 broadcast. I'm pretty sure it is, uh, because is it it's, it's looks like Chris Moyles. And... Yes, it was. OK. It was Chris Moyles. It was on Radio 1. Yeah, they got a Radio 1 play, which went on my CV, you know. But And, and they they played it. I, I remember it. I, I didn't see it. And that's not my lad. It's nothing to do with me, that. It's uh, he, someone sent it to me and said, you know, this your song's been on Radio One, which is great. But the song itself, uh, Paul Damien, the guy that sang it, was a great mate of mine. He did the clubs, and he uh, asked me. I used to write songs for him, and he he said I could do with a comedy song, you know, for my act. And I said, well, you know, you're not funny, you know what I mean, <laughs> you know, because I used to write jingles for the radio and comedy stuff. And he, I said, you're not funny, but I said, I suppose you could teach the whale to say that long name. That's And it was over a cup of coffee on a Monday morning when I went to his house to discuss our gigs over the weekend. And I said, hang on, say the words. So he said it to me. And I said, say it again. Blah, blah. said, it scans how to say the word. Genius. We'll do a record how to say No one's thought of it. And within a week, I'd recorded, written the song, recorded it with him, and uh, that, was, that was it. And we got it out, went over to Wales. Uh, a lot of the shops didn't want to know. You know, we put it on a vinyl, and 
eventually I got to the, the town itself and went to the station and I gave them, uh, I think it was 50 copies of the vinyls, said, you know, you can have these, say, or return, see how you get on with them. When I got back home, he'd sold a lot. When I got home, by the time I got home, he phoned me and he said, we, this has gone off the shot off the shelves. And uh, that was it. That was the beginning of it all. So I ended up, uh, when, when the, it was selling at the station, actually, when the station closed down, the um, the shop opposite decided to do it. So I said, I'll put it on a cassette because people can play the cassette in the car and carry it in their pocket. You know, the vinyl is a bit awkward. Then you play it straight away. So we put it on a cassette. The guy opposite in the shop gave, gave copies to the coaches who brought them in and it just sold in droves, this thing. And... Um, you know, all those shops that didn't want to know, it must be kicking themselves because it sold thousands and thousands, this thing. And um, eventually uh, I put it onto a CD, which, which they changed. And then the guy that was selling it sadly passed away. And his wife, uh, she retired. They've sold for a while. I put it on an album then. And then I thought, oh, well, that, that'll do. I've made enough out of that. And I put it onto YouTube thinking, you know, people might be interested. It's had 2.8 million hits on YouTube, <laughs> this one song. I mean, when you think it was just over a cup of coffee, had it not gone there that morning, it would never have happened. You know, that's how things are. And as I say, I always say to people, to songwriters, just do it, get it out there. And now with, with the uh, advent of YouTube, you don't even need radio play to sell the stuff he well, just put it onto youtube it goes worldwide instantly interesting and, and, and it's free interesting yeah. those words because obviously you know we've bro we've grown up with radio we met via radio um we met we didn't see each other for a long time then we met over the radio again when i got in touch with you from my radio show in spain in the meantime, I'm going to go to another thing on YouTube, which is a tribute made to Monty Lister. Let me just play this. Tune Tonic was a popular programme presented by Monty Lister on BBC Radio Merseyside every Sunday morning from 1967 to 2004. The programme included requests and dedications from his many listeners, plus competitions, travel features and interviews with famous celebrities. Over the years, Monty interviewed 550 celebrities ranging from the Duke of Edinburgh, Bing Crosby and Bob Hope, to Tommy Cooper, Morecambe and Wise, and Ken Dodd. He also interviewed many pop stars, including Bill Haley, Gene Vincent, Roy Orbison, Cliff Richard, Guy Mitchell and Eddie Cochran, and was in fact the first person to interview the Beatles. In 1999, Monty asked me to assist him on his programme which I did until 2004. We had been good friends for many years before this and I wrote several jingles for him which he used on his programme. My time on the programme took me on his many travel features where I took care of recording the sound. They included day trips all over Europe. 
These are just a small selection of our adventures. A dedication, special message or request. A weekly competition or a special guest. Travel to the north, south, east or west. From the comfort of your easy chair. He'll tell you what's on locally and then he'll play. Music which is perfect for the time of day. It's great to get your Sunday morning underway with Monty on the air. It's time to put the kettle on. Okay, so uh, you then have a catalogue of different places that you both went to. Um, I feel very envious, really, because, you know, it would have been lovely to have been involved in this. I obviously um, did meet Monty, and it was in a rather weird way at Port Sunlight Boys Club. I was running the judo mat there, and um, uh, he used to come in with a load of young lads. And, of course, he probably was teaching them about radio. But, y you know, your paths meet at sometimes at the wrong times. Looking at these pictures, you've had some fabulous, fabulous um, memories with this guy. And it just shows me, really, how much sometimes the BBC missed the boat. Because, you know, I always felt that I could have done a lot more with them. And obviously, I'm looking at these pictures of you and uh, Monty Lister and the places you went to and the things you did... Um, and I wonder how much the BBC really appreciated what a what a piece of gold dust they had, because th this is wonderful. For me to see this now, it's absolutely wonderful, Don. Well done. Well, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Vinny. But you see, they didn't appreciate him. You know, the point is, with, with these trips, there were day trips. You know, we went to Marrakesh and back in the day, we did the travelogue while we were there. Monty interviewed people that were there and I did his sound for him carrying this big taping rod around around my neck and we came back same day went to Rome came back in the same day and, and Norway and everywhere and it was great fun but you see when he asked me to um, help him out on his program I knew him for years before that because uh, he used to do his jingles for him as I say and we became good friends and I'd call him for a coffee every so often. And, and he was great, you know, a great mate, actually. And, and it was quite funny. But what he said, he, went, he had a young fellow working for him. Uh, this is what a sort of guy he was. He had a, a young fellow working for him, helping him out on his programme on a Sunday morning, who wanted to be an airline pilot. And Monty sorted out a flight with the red arrows for him. That that that's what he that you know that's how thoughtful he was. This and he got and the lad went with the red arrows and he he ended up in the uh, being an airline pilot. This lad and that was when Manti said, "Can you help me out on the program?" And I said, "Well, I, I don't want to know. <laughs> I don't want to know radio." I said, "I'm out. I've got a residency every Friday and Saturday night playing." And I said, I don't want to be getting up Sunday morning at past seven to come on, on your programme. He said, it'll only be for two weeks. So, so I said, oh, all right. So I was there for five years. I couldn't get out of it. But I enjoyed every minute of it because he was a great fella, mm. you know. And, and it gave me the chance to uh, get play my own stuff on the radio. <laughs> and also, I interviewed the likes of Carl Terry 
of the cruises and and um, a lot of the local Brian Jones. I, I, I did separate interviews with them at their houses and and I took that in and Monty would play yeah. it, you know, the interview with them, telling their little life story, so you can you can help them along, you know. Yeah. And, and that's how it worked. It was it was it was a good, very very popular the program. We had we had thousands of listeners, but the BBC again, you know, they didn't really appreciate him for what he was and. In the end, the, the way, well, he, he he resigned, put it that way, but he didn't really he sort of resign. But it was, uh, you know, he was getting on a bit anyway, perhaps past his sell-by date. But the BBC, you know, he, they asked me, did they want to stay on? I said, no, I wasn't interested, to be honest. And that was it. So it sounds, was, to, was, it sounds to me very, very similar to my own experience. You know, you do an awful lot, but then, you know, it always seems the goodies go to other people and you know sadly i think that's where a lot of people have um you know felt with the bbc over the years although you know i have to say it was always my ambition to get a nice job at the end of it and probably when i think back if i'd have if i'd have got that maybe i wouldn't have done the things that i have subsequently done you know yeah. so you got to you're right yeah. okay you're well right. normally Normally, I only go to an hour, but this has been fascinating. And I want to turn to another part of your life, which is uh, to do with where you live. I can walk down to the seashore and find a place to stand And see the storm clouds gather in the sky I can watch the breakers wash away my footprints in the sand How lucky am I I can wander through the fields of green and feel the summer breeze And listen to the songbirds lullaby I can take a trip to Hillary Island anytime I please How lucky the rugged cliffs along the coast which rise up from the shore The meadowland as far as you can see A thousand winding footpaths which are ready to explore Are on display and absolutely free I can stroll along the Wirral Way and walk down leafy lanes And return a smile to every passerby Negotiating styles and dodging puddles when it rains How lucky am I Okay, so um, you've got me feeling quite... Um, uh, I won't necessarily say emotional, although, yes, emotions are involved because this is a very special place. We often have a... Um, academic discourse about whether it should be the Wirral or just Wirral <laughs> and you know uh, I think uh, overall we agree that it should be Wirral but everybody calls it the Wirral and yeah. you know yeah. you, you would by definition you'd have, you'd have to say the, the Wirral wouldn't you or the Liverpool yeah. 
And That's right. Of course, from here in Spain, where we have a very green sort of existence in the north of the country and in the west of the country, uh, especially northwest, um, we then go to these places. And I'm just looking at an amazing coincidence because it looks to me like the bench that you've got featured on this video that you've made of Whittle is a very special bench. It, it, it could possibly be the one on the Mopoli Pass um, tell me if I'm right, uh, because if it is, I'll tell you a story. Um, no, the Thermopylae Pass actually runs up the side of our road here, where, where I live. Okay. Um, no, the bench, I think, uh, I can't picture it now. I think it's it's on Thurstiston Hill, I think, okay. that bench, looking out over the D over to Wales. It's... Um, Wirral is just a beautiful place. It, it you know, it, I've never ever decided wanted to live anywhere else. It, it's just a wonderful place, you know, and uh, it's got everything because it's 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 a peninsula, and it has the River Dee on one side, the Mersey on the other, and you're looking out over the Irish Sea, and you can walk right round it, you know, and you can walk round the coast. And you can cycle around the coast. It has cycle paths. It's just a great place to live. And as I say, it's, again, it's a cul-de-sac. So there's no through traffic. You know, you, you, you've come onto the peninsula and you've got to go back out again the other way if you come in from outside. It's great. It's a great place. Well, of course, and, when, when you and I were growing up, it was Wirral Cheshire, wasn't it? Yeah. And uh, I think it was 1974 with the Radcliffe Maud changing the the boundaries so the politicians would probably be able to juggle the, the best way for them to get in um you know it, it is annoying when you think of the way uh, our lives have been affected by things like that because we're all merseyside okay we now accept it as merseyside uh, but a line went right through the middle of Wirral. uh one side of it going up towards chester suddenly became cheshire the way it was and the other side Wirral merseyside and you know these things might not be important but i think when politicians draw lines and decide to rename things sometimes they don't realize they do tug at the heartstrings of people and the way they've lived for generations. And Wirral is a very, very special place. I'm, I, I obviously, because I come from Wirral, Merseyside, because I lived in Birkenhead and Bebbington and Wallasey, I feel I do know the area. And, of course, having played all the clubs and worked for Radio Merseyside, um, you know, it, it is a very special part of my life that I can't forget. But you, I won't say you've become obsessive, but you do have an obsession with the place, don't you? Yeah, what it was, uh, so I'm always looking for a gap in the market, like with the Lanfair PG song, the Welsh song. You see, there's always a gap in the market, and, and I, I took the songwriting very... I never wrote a song that I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I, I used to write a song for a purpose, you know, I used to write jingles for the radio. I used to write jingles for, for companies like um, Chester Zoo. And, th I, I did jing and I got them on the television in adverts. That's what I used to do. And, the, and I was standing on Thurston Hill one day, and I looked over and I said, there's the Mersey, there's the D, looks out on the Irish Sea. Between the Mersey and the D, looks out on the Irish Sea. There's got to be a song there. So I wrote a song called The Wirral Song. And 
and I, I put, you know, when you're writing something passionately, it comes over on the record, you know. So I gave this to the leisure services mate of mine who ran leisure services. I said, I've written this song about uh, about Whittle. And he said, oh, he said, yeah. He said, it's great. He loved it. He said, uh, we'll order, I think it was 4,000 of them off me. You know, I said, well, I'll have to write some others to go with it. So I did one up the Wirral Way, the, the last train down the Wirral Way, uh, which was the 4122, and uh, another couple of songs about about the area. This thing took off. So I thought, wow, this, this, this is, you know, we're on here. So what I started doing, I started making albums of songs of the area, which nobody was doing. And, there were, and, and there were, I was selling them abroad, because like, like people like yourself, who who are from here, you know, it, it, it gets in your bones, the area. You, you never, it never leaves you. You know, as I've always said, you may leave Wirral, but it'll never leave you, you know. And this is what happened. And I had a, a lady who'd, who'd sell them for me, um, a lady called Edna Noble, and she had a, a, a charity uh, out, outfit. So I was, I was given her them to sell, and, and a part of it was going to charity, which was nice to be able to do. And in children's charities and hospitals and things, she was into all that. And these things were selling great, you know. And that was, you know, wasn't wasn't like hit material, but it was it was getting through to people. And people used to say, oh, that song. One woman uh, wrote to me and she said she was in Australia and she'd bought, she'd been sent the song by uh, friends here. And she said she was ironing. And she said the tears were coming down her face and she didn't need water when she was ironing. She said <laughs> she was so, and it's nice, you know, to hear that because, and people have often said, oh, you know, you just do commercial, do you feel that way? Well, I do, I do feel that way. You can't write songs like that unless you feel that way, you know. Mm. And I remember looking out at, at Hoylake and, and Hoylake is, is a place where, where they play the Open, the, the, the British Open now and again, the Gulf. And you, you look out over the sea, and when the tide's out, it's so far out, yeah. you can't see yeah. the tide. And then I, I was sitting there on, on my bike, I'm just having a break, and I thought, where the sandbanks reach the horizon, where sea and sky collide, and fishing boats are set afloat on each incoming tide. I thought, that's it. That's, I'm going to write a song about that. <laughs> you see, you see it. And you think like that's got to be put to music, and and fortunately I've got the sort I've I've got the skills to do it. Not that I think I'm any better than anybody else. It's just that I can do it, you know. Yeah. And I've never had an ego. I've never wanted to be famous. That, that's the last thing I want. You know, the egos cost money, and you know these things were selling. And I was doing other stuff as well, commercial stuff. But that that was from the heart, and it, it reaches people. And then I got into DVDs. And I did. I started filming the area and setting them to music, mm-hmm. as as um, technology advanced, and that that's how it was. But as I say, basically, I'm in the band. The band was a separate entity. I didn't sell my stuff in the band. I didn't play my own stuff in the band. And um, you know, you know, because the band was just to make money. That was that was basically <laughs> all I was in it for. You know, send me the money. Let me give and, you a date. Uh, I'm going to give you a date. The 12th of January. 1991. Any ideas what that uh, might signify? The 12th of January 1991. Um, 
I don't know. Can I give you a musical clue? Yep. Okay, here it comes. Right, musical clue on the way. It was a very, very special day. And um, this is so Saturday musical. Saturday the 12th of January 1991 was the last day the Royal Irish would be in service on the River Mersey. Its final cruise was to be on that evening when a farewell dance was to be held. So this great vessel spent its last afternoon moored at Seacombe Landing Stage, being prepared for the evening event. It seemed strange and rather sad that a boat which had been so familiar for 40 years was to suddenly cease to be a part of the river. A boat which had become a part of so many childhood memories of the area. It entered service in 1951 for Wallasey Ferries. It was then a totally new design as it was almost completely enclosed and had quite a different colour scheme from the other ferry boats. Its length was around 150 feet and it weighed 1,234 tonnes. It had a speed of 12 knots and a capacity of 2,296 passengers. Okay, so this is the last day of the Royal Iris and of course the Royal Iris, what does that mean to me? Well, of course, as a young lad, I used to go down from Bebbington and I'd go down to the Pierhead I'd get me ticket, I'd either maybe get off um, just before that and get the train under the Mersey, or if for some reason I wanted to go the other way, I'd go down and get the ferry boat. We'd all mob-handed go down with all the other people working. Um, we'd get on the boat, and there was something very magical about going across the Mersey um, you know, you'd wait for the drawbridge to come down the other side and then you'd all mob-handed get off the boat. And I used to walk up to my first job in uh, Liverpool University, stationary clerk. Um, but, of course, there was a lot more to that boat, wasn't there? The, the, um, the Royal Iris was a very special boat, wasn't it? It was. I remember it first, I, I, well, I was only a kiddie when it came out on the Mersey. It was like shaped like a bullet. It was it was unusual, totally different to anything else, and it was and it, a lot of concerts around there. The Beatles played on there, and Jerry and the Page and ourselves. We all played on on the on the Iris. They used to have a dance floor inside and, and a restaurant, and uh, it was it was interesting because you used to go out into the Liverpool Bay when you were playing, and when it turned round, everyone would stagger to one side of the dance floor, and then when it turned round, stagger back again, including the band. You had to keep your balance. But it was a great boat, and I, I, it meant a lot to everybody. Everybody in the area. It was a, it was a beautiful boat, and on its last day, I thought I'll go down to Seacombe and join the crowds and 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 film it and make a little video. And I was the only one there. I was the only one there. There was nobody there. It was it was moored up uh, on Seacombe landing stage. So I started making a few, making this film of it. And uh, this guy came off the boat and he said, you're OK, mate, can I help you? And I said, no, I'm just making a, 
a video of the last day of the of the bout. And he said, oh, here's my card. He said, that's my last card. I've still got it. He said, I, I'm the steward or something on it. He said, go on board, fill your boots. So I went on board and I filmed all the, da- the old dance floor and everything in the engine room. And uh, that, that film is on now on YouTube, you know, um, from back in 91. But I, was, I couldn't believe I was the only one there. It was, I'm, so I'm the only one with that film of the last day of the Iris in the day. I think they had a, they had a bit of a do at night, uh, a bit of a dance on it or something. But nobody was there, so I'm the only one with that film. So and that course, film on YouTube is unique. You know. Yeah, um, I'm also looking just above that particular uh, film, and you've got abandoned the Royal Iris in Woolwich down in London, yeah. and then yeah. you've got another one. Uh, Royal Daffodils says goodbye to Birkenhead. Um, yeah, I yeah. mean realistically, uh, it's almost like oh. the heritage. I mean, at the moment, we're talking about a time when, you know, you've got all this woke stuff going on, which is nonsense um, if you really look at why uh, you should preserve things like this particular or these boats. Because for millions of people, because it will be millions uh, when you take in the people that have used it regularly, um, you know, this was a way of life. It's, It's just normal to go and get, I mean, I can remember going on the boat um, by getting on the bus and asking for a bus and boat return, please. And, yeah. y- you know, we've yeah. all grown up with this particular aspect of our lives. Um, you- you've taken it to a huge, differently, different degree by, uh, you know, cataloguing all this sort of stuff. And basically, if people want to go and look at these things that you've uh, put on YouTube, um, Don, I think really... Um, we've got to sort of find a way of finishing this. (laughs) 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 So look, all I'm going to say is I'm going to play a song called a taxi to the past. Um, And then we'll have a quick look at that song. And then we'll look at um, a couple of things. And then by that time, I think it'll be time for me tea. Yeah. So let's go to the taxi to the past. Hello, everybody. Today I've got a fantastic abandoned place. Okay, so we're, uh, the sound is a little bit uh, lighter on that one. I can't pump it up. But the idea, basically, of a taxi to the past. If you were to have a taxi to the past, what part of your life would you like to get out of that taxi and go back to? Definitely the 60s. I think, uh, y- you know, the, the progression. See, the, the recording side of my life uh, came later. But the band, starting in the band, um, how you progress in a band is that that's that's what I really enjoyed because the first band I left school with wanted to play some other guy now and all that sort of stuff, which I didn't particularly like. I wasn't sort of into the Maisie sound, if you like, is what they used to call it. But 
Mersey beat, which, you know, it wasn't really Mersey beat. It was American stuff. But I liked the ballads. And I met this guy who, 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 who said, I saw you with your band. And he said, I like the way you sing. You know, you're the only one that, that sings the stuff I like. Do you want to join another band? This fellow was 10 years older than me, and I did. And what happened to me there was I joined this band, and we were playing four nights a week. I think I was on 10 bob a night, I think, or something like that. And we, we, they had a jazz club, which you might remember, called the Club 500, on the docks in, in Seacombe. And to get in on a Sunday afternoon, he had to play. And I was playing with all these jazz musicians and learning so much you know, from these guys that I could, I ended up, I can play jazz guitar and I can play. And then I met another guy when we were out, an old guy who, who taught me strict tempo because, because he kept, he was emceeing and he said, can you play a slow fox? And I said, well, I know what a slow fox is, but I don't know why. And he, he educated me on strict tempo. So during the 60s, I, I, my guitar playing, because of who, who I knew and where I was, was increasing all the time, getting better. And then this this guy, we then went out as a, as a as a band who could play strict tempo and rock and roll and uh, Latin American. We could do anything. We had a good drummer uh, and, you know, we could play anything. So we were getting booked all the time. We were a function band. We didn't do the clubs and we did like Masonics. And that's what we did right through uh, and, and still did till about... Uh, six years ago when I packed in or five years ago but that that that's when I'd like to go back to the progression through the 60s because the 60s was a great time we were so lucky to, to go through that uh, blokes of our age you know I think you know. okay I'm going to finish with one one question um, obviously uh, apart from your mum and dad because you know most of us would always acknowledge the influence of our parents um if I was to say to you, give me three people who you think have influenced your life most, who would you say? Um, I think on the show business side, a fella called James Burton, who was Ricky Nelson's. I was a fan of Ricky Nelson in the 50s. He was the guitarist who I tried to emulate and he was the guy that played on the record um the first record i learned to play uh, poor little fool when i was at school that was james burton and he, he ended up being elvis's guitarist in vegas and i followed his life and at the end of the day like uh, i ended up doing a gig with him he came over to england and i i was fortunate enough to be to, to do a gig with him I sang Ricky an hour of Ricky Nelson stuff with him backing me and it went down so well he, he came over eight times and I did eight concerts with him that guy had a massive influence I think my dad had an uh, had an influence on me because he, he he left me alone to do my own stuff you know and and, and he was a clever fellow my dad he, he was he was he was actually in D-Day he never spoke about it. he went over he was in the tank regiment but he never spoke about it. And I often wish I'd asked him about that, but he never mentioned it really. And uh, my mum died really sadly when I was young. And But he, he, he was a good influence because he said to me, you've got to build 
you know, don't, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Just build one step at a time. Then if you fall down, you only fall down one step. He said, you always need a backup. So I always had a job. You know, when everyone was going to Germany, all the bands, you know, they, they now haven't got two eight meters up together. You know, I kept the job and did the group. You know, it was hard work. And then when I was recording, they did that on top of that. And and that, that was the guy. That, and the other chap, I think the third, would be uh, the chap who, who had the, the group, the jazz group, um, the, the, the 4Ds we were called, Barry, who was the funniest man. I've ever met, sadly, he's not with us anymore. He had a massive influence on me. Um, great friend, and, and that's basically it, really. You know, there's lots of people, but I think those three sort of stand out, you know. OK, Don, well, look, we'll be meeting again on Monday. Uh, it's now Saturday. That just means you'll have to miss me on Saturday no, <laughs> Sunday, and then we'll be back up doing our normal show. So what I'm going to finish off with is a tribute to, uh, to Bobby V. So it's quite a nice way to finish off with. Don, great knowing more about you, and um, we'll have to do it again sometime. Right, Vince. Nice to talk to you, mate, as always. Catch you on Monday. Bye. Okay, bud. See you, mate. Thank you.